Well, man, it's already been a really great morning, hasn't it? This is one of those days where uh, like the pressure's kind of all off when I step up here. In fact, I'm pretty sure I could probably just like dismiss all of you and most of you probably be okay with that. Uh, really, really excited that all of you decided to show up here today. I, I really, really do mean that. I say that just about every week and I really do mean it every week when I do say that. We don't take that for granted, particularly if this is your first time with us here today. Uh, I, I get how firsthand walking into a new place, it can be a little bit intimidating. It can even feel downright scary. And so we're so glad that you decided to take that risk and, and walk through our doors today. So honestly, thank you for being here. Uh, we are entering into part four of a five-part series that we have been in called What Would It Take? And, and I can't speak for all of you, but I have really, really been enjoying this series. And in fact, even as I've been writing and crafting these messages, God has been speaking to me into some pretty direct ways and calling some changes even in my own life. And I, I certainly hope that that has been the case for all of you as well. Just in case you haven't been here for the entirety of the series, or maybe you have been and you just suffer from amnesia, uh, the question we've been honing in on is this, is what would it take for your brother to convince you that he like is actually the son of God. Now, as we learned about in the first week, and apparently a lot of you didn't know this, and, and that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing actually, and a lot of you actually told me this, uh, Jesus had siblings. Jesus, in fact, had four younger brothers. Jesus also had sisters as well, and you might assume uh, it was a given that growing up with Jesus that you would have believed your older brother when he said that he was the son of God, but actually that was not the case. In fact, I think this is one of the most compelling details that you would be wise to consider, especially if you've ever been skeptical of Christianity, if you've ever been skeptical of Jesus. This is one of those things you ought to pay attention to, that, that none of Jesus' siblings actually believed that he was the son of God. They, 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 they weren't convinced, even after all the miracles, even after all the incredible speeches, after, even after his ability to draw a unique crowd, he, he was not convinced, they were not convinced that Jesus was in fact the son of God. Not one of them bought into the family business. They in fact assumed what you all would assume if your older brother tried to convince you that he was the son of God. They, they assumed that Jesus had lost his mind. <laughs> they assumed that there was something wrong with Jesus, but yet we fast forward to the year AD 62. And in that year, something pretty noteworthy occurs. Jesus' younger brother, a guy by the name of James in AD 62, is put to death for his faith in his savior, who just so happens to be his older brother. J James is martyred, he is stoned to death because he will not stop talking about his older brother, Jesus, who he is now convinced was actually the son of God. So, so the question that has to be asked is, what happened? Seriously, what happened? What takes a person from an eye-rolling skeptic to suddenly willing to and eventually would be killed for his faith in his brother? And the what that happened in James' life and presumably for the rest of his siblings was something that James saw. J James saw his risen brother. James saw his risen savior. And as we've been talking about in this series, when your brother predicts his own death and he predicts his own resurrection, and then you see your risen brother after just days earlier witnessing him being nailed to and killed on a cross, you would do, in fact, what anybody would do in this scenario. You believe. And because of the complete 180 that we see in the life of James, from full-blown skeptic to now totally bought-in believer, I think that this is a detail that you ought to pay attention to. 
that, that you ought to consider as you consider following and putting your faith in Jesus. It's why we think this letter that James wrote, aptly titled James, is significant. We think it's why it's worth paying attention to no matter where you find yourself in this whole faith journey. It's why we're doing this series, diving into the words of James, the now suddenly believing brother of Jesus. Now, if you haven't been here for every week of the series, we definitely don't want you missing out on the fun, and so we would really, really encourage you to go to grumlaw.com slash messages and catch yourself up there. You can listen to the messages there. You can watch the messages there. Get a little bit more of me in your life. That might be a good thing, maybe a bad thing for some of you. Uh, you can also find us in our Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. Now, as I mentioned last week, when you're reading through James' letter, and hopefully some of you are doing that, or some of you are taking the challenge seriously to read through the letter of James every week for the rest of the series, I'm seeing three heads nod. That's encouraging. Okay, you can still jump on board, though. Uh, read through the book of James every week for the rest of this series, and that maybe sounds like an intimidating task, but remember, the book of James is literally five chapters long, so even if you have two cheat days built in each week, it'll take you a whopping about 10 minutes a day, and just watch how God begins to speak to you through the words of James. But as you're chugging along, and as you're reading through the book of James, he can certainly appear a bit scatterbrained. Now, I don't know if this is why he seems scatterbrained. I'm fully acknowledging to all of you that this is just my theory. I don't think you'll find it substantiated by anything else. This is just kind of Shay's thoughts. This is what I think happened. I think that, that James, after watching his brother successfully predict his own death and predict his own resurrection, after seeing that actually pulled off, he kind of had one of those oh crud moments where he was like, oh crud, I should have been writing this stuff down. Suddenly, my brother's words are a lot more important now than they were a couple days ago before he actually pulled off his own resurrection. And he had this frantic moment where he just started ripping it down and he started writing all this stuff down before he forgot. And because of how he jumps around throughout his letter, he, he can appear blunt. In fact, there's many times throughout his letter that he just seems downright insensitive. Now, I don't know, maybe that's exactly who James was. Maybe he was this blunt, insensitive human being, but perhaps it just appears that way. I mean, shoot, all of us, we have all been victims of typed words being interpreted in a different tone than what you originally intended, right? You've all sent that text, you've all sent that email, maybe for some of you even wrote letters, and only come to find out that that person has been harboring a grudge against you for, for days, for weeks, for months, for years in some cases, all because they interpreted a tone that you did not intend. Now, now, we saw this at the end of the fourth chapter last week as we dove into just one verse, and it was a statement that kind of came out of nowhere. He, he didn't bother to continue explaining it. He was just kind of on and off to the next thing, and, and that's where we're going to pick up here today, right at the beginning of the fifth chapter. He makes another one of these seemingly out-of-nowhere statements when he says, look here, you rich people. Now, now I kind of get the in, interpretation here that it's almost like he's like pointing his finger in all of our faces. He's like, you know, look here. Like he, he's pointing the finger off. I was like, look here, you rich people. And again, it, it's another one of those moments that, that as you're reading through his letter, you have to think to yourself like, okay, like where did that come from? Like, like, like why are you being so like aggressive now? And, and I have to think that as James wrote this down, he, he had no idea just how applicable these words would be for all of us thousands of years later. He, he had no idea that the warning that he is about to issue would arguably be more applicable today than it was to his original audience. Because here's what, what every single one of us, I think, probably does when we hear a statement like this. We see, look here, you rich people. We all sit there and we're like, oh, <laughs> you're not talking to me, right? 
Like the, you couldn't possibly be talking to me. We, we start looking over our shoulder for the rich person because there is no way that, that you could possibly qualify as a rich person. There's no way James could be talking to you. And, and all of us, including myself here, very much throwing myself under the bus this morning, without any thinking at all, we would have about 20 different reasons, 20 different excuses as to why we are not rich. We, we say things like this, I'm not rich, I drive a Honda. Rich people don't drive Hondas. Rich people drive like BMWs and Mercedes and Lexus. Like you couldn't possibly be rich to drive a Honda. I'm not rich. We don't even have Netflix. Like who doesn't have Netflix at this point? That's like 12 bucks a month. Like I'm definitely not rich. I'm not rich. I get my coffee at McDonald's like a peasant. I mean, it's embarrassing. Other people are going through and getting like breakfast sandwiches. I'm getting my coffee. Rich people, they go to Starbucks. I'm not rich. I have a Dell. It's got like crazy viruses. You can't really hardly turn it on without getting sick. Rich people, they, they, they got computers with fruit on them. Like that, that ain't me. I'm not rich. I've had the same iPhone for three years. There's no upgrade coming. I got to replace the battery. It's only got one camera. You pull out your three camera iPhone. And it's like, geez, this is humiliating. Stand closer. I can't even take a picture of you. I'm not rich. We shop at Aldi. The first service, they applauded at this. There were like some serious Aldi supporters. Rich people, they shop at Kroger and Meyer. I mean, they have so much discretionary income, they love throwing it away. I'm not rich. We can't even remodel our kitchen. I mean, you walk in our kitchen, these cabinets are ugly. The countertop is just like, ugh. It's like, I don't even know how we survive with this kitchen. I'm not rich. Our ice dispenser doesn't work. And we got no plans to fix it either. It's like, you know, when we got guests coming over, it's like a week of frantic filling up those ice trays and dumping it into a bucket and like pretending the ice dispenser worked when everybody knows it doesn't. I'm not rich. My kids have to share an iPad. What's worse is some of you, your kids are so like, I mean, my goodness, they are just growing up in such poverty. They have to use like an Acer Pro tablet. It's like the calibration's all off. You're tapping over here and it's actually touching here. It's a mess. I'm not rich. We only go out to eat if we have a gift card. Like never would we even think of it unless we had a gift card. Now, here's the thing. We all laugh at this stuff. <laughs> I didn't make up one of these. Th these are things that people have either said to me or as embarrassing as this is to admit to all of you, things that I have actually thought to myself. And, and the reason that these excuses are so easy, that the reason that these things are such low-hanging fruit is because we all have an inclination to do what admittedly comes so natural to every single one of us, and, and that is to compare. And, and see, when you start comparing, it, it will take you hardly any time at all to think of, to see someone that has more than you or somebody that you at least think has more than you. And therefore, and this is how our logic works, as skewed as it is, we, we could not possibly be rich because there are people out in the world that have more money, that have more stuff, that have more possessions than we do. But I, I think, as we all know, that is actually a preposterous, that is a ludicrous line of thinking. Does anybody have any idea who that guy is? You can shout it out if you do. Anyone? Jeff Bezos. Some of you guys know who Jeff Bezos is. Jeff Bezos, according to Forbes, uh, is the richest man on the face of the planet. Uh, Jeff is worth approximately, listen to this, $131 billion. Uh, he, he, made his CEO, he made his fortune as the CEO and founder of a company that you've probably heard of before called Amazon. 
He, he also owns the Washington Post and another company called Blue Origin, which is an aerospace company that is developing a rocket for commercial use, which I'm pretty sure he just started that company to remind everybody of just how rich he is, because what in the heck would we need a rocket for commercial use for? Now, I bring up Jack because the only reason... I said, I bring up John, because I think this might be the only person on the face of the earth that upon James saying these words, look here, you rich people, he doesn't immediately flinch and look over his shoulder. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, like the founder, CEO of Facebook, that guy's got a lot of money. It's like, hey, look here, you rich people. He's like, oh, you're not talking to me, right? I'm like, I'm not that rich. I'm not Jeff rich. Nobody thinks they're rich because we all look around and find somebody that has more than us. But, but what I'm asking maybe for all of you to consider this morning is drink a dose of humility, uh, allow yourself to maybe be teachable, and maybe just consider some of these facts. An income of $32,400 per year uh, would allow someone to be among the top 1% of income earners in the world. The World Bank has set the international poverty line at $1.90 per day. That actually has gone up, too. Uh, globally, 9.9% of the world is living on less than $2 a day, almost 10% of the world. Uh, nearly half of the world's population lives on under 250 a day, and 80% of the world population lives on less than $10 a day. But yet, every day, Americans, on average, spend $101 every single day. Uh, and not to get too morbid, but 22,000 children die each day, every day, due to poverty. 22,000 due to very preventable illnesses with a simple vaccine, due to malnourishment, due to not having enough to eat. Now, now some of you might be thinking, my goodness, that just really escalated quickly. My point in showing you some of these pieces of data isn't to make you feel guilty. The, the, the point is, is that when James says something like, look here, you rich people, maybe we ought not to be so quick to look over our shoulders and assume that James is talking to that rich uncle or that rich brother or that rich coworker, that rich neighbor. Because in fact, I'm, I'm pretty confident that James is talking to you. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to the people that are sitting in this room. He's talking to people that live in first world countries. He's talking to, to Americans. He's talking to people that most of you are, are so rich, in fact, that not only do you have houses, but most of you, you have houses for your cars. He's talking to people that have so much discretionary income that most of you, and myself included, we, we won't bat an eye at spending $4 on a latte, something that we will consume in a matter of minutes, something that exceeds what most people will in the world will even make in a day. He, he's ta talking to people that aren't figuring out if they have a pair of shoes to wear, but, but which pair of sh shoes to wear with that particular outfit. Y you all, by virtue of the fact that you drove here today in your little magic machines, that you ate a meal this morning, that, that you have multiple outfits to pick from, that you live in America, you're rich. You're, you're in fact filthy rich. And so when James says these words, look here, you rich people, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, he's talking to the people that are in this room. Now, I'm certainly smart enough to know that, that some of you are, are not convinced, that some of you will still compare, that some of you will continue to play the woe is me card, that you will continue to look over your shoulder and assume that James is talking to someone else. But taking the lead from James this morning, um, can I be so blunt to, to share with, with, with those of you that are still feeling that way that you are perhaps the person that needs to hear this the most? Throughout James' entire letter, in fact, throughout the New Testament as a whole, which is that second half of the Bible, the, the, the writers are addressing those that already have a sneaking suspicion that there is something off. 
but, but we might not have had the courage to admit that to anybody else or even admit it to ourselves. They're trying to grab the attention of those that are to a certain extent living in a state of denial, beckoning, calling out to me, calling out to you to wake up, to, to, to face reality. And it's why I admire it's why I have come to appreciate writers like James, writers like Paul, people who care well enough about us that they are willing to speak those hard truths, that they're willing to share those details that, that other people will hold back because they're fearful of offending us, that they're, they're fearful that they might hurt our feelings. You all, the, the people that care about you the most are those individuals that share the last 10%. They're the people that share those hard truths. In fact, when, when somebody consistently demonstrates that they are unwilling to share the whole truth with you, you should be offended by that. Because what that individual is communicating to you in that moment is that they don't think that you possess the emotional maturity to be able to handle it. That they don't think that you are emotionally intelligent enough to face up to reality. No, those that care about it the most share those hard truths. They're trying to help us along in this journey to become more like Jesus. They love us so much that they're willing to risk, that they're willing to offend, because deep down they know it is worth it, because they know that that might be the very thing that is holding you back in order that you might end up exactly where God ultimately wants to take you. And I'm convinced of this, and this is no exaggeration, I'm not saying this for hyperbole. I am convinced that the majority, not some, the majority of this room is being held back by the very thing that James is about to address right here. He continues, he says, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, now the very reasonable follow-up to, to this statement made by James might be a question of, what in the heck is he talking about? Like, like, what is he alluding to? Like, weep and groan and, and terrible troubles? I mean, again, that all, that all sounds so dramatic. Now, more than likely, when James was writing this, he had a very specific group of people in mind. In fact, most biblical scholars would actually agree that James was specifically addressing the wealthy landowners of that day that would not treat their workers very well at all. That they would garnish wages for any reasons they saw fit. If they were having a down year, they just wouldn't pay their workers so they could have more profits for themselves. Uh, they would even from time to time kill some of these workers as a way to kind of set an example to the other people that were working for them. And James is reminding these wealthy landowners that a day of reckoning is a coming. That there will be a day, make no mistake about it, where you are going to stand in front of your creator. You're going to stand in front of the Lord Almighty, looking face to face to him, and you will be held accountable for how well or how not well you treated the people around you, even the people that you are convinced don't have as much status as you. But what's so important to note here is that James is not writing from a position of spite. James isn't gloating. He's genuinely trying to warn. He is hoping and praying that these wealthy landowners turn from this corrupt way that they are living their lives, which is why, again, this is so incredibly applicable to every single one of us. We all, and we know this deep down, we all have a tendency to move towards greed as opposed to generosity as opposed to selflessness. And we all naturally lean towards accumulating more for ourselves without giving so much as a passing thought 
to the enormous amount of need that exists in our community and to our world at large. And James would tell us that because of the incredibly affluent society that every single one of us have been born into, we are actually at a bit of a disadvantage. And we have a pretty enormous obstacle to overcome that he knows will forever try to fracture our allegiance to Jesus. And so he continues. He says, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. In other words, and I hope that this isn't news to any of you that are sitting here today, uh, when you die, you are not going to be able to take any of this stuff with you. There's not going to be this moment where you're like, all right, give me a second, Jesus. I'm going to gather all like, my really prized possessions up real quick. Um, about a month ago, I, I took a trip down south for a conference, and I was going to be down there for about a week uh, by myself. And so I, I checked into a Holiday Inn Express and, and try as hard as hotels do to create this like home-like kind of atmosphere. It's still not home, right? When you're young, there ain't nothing better than a hotel, right? When you're like in elementary, middle school, middle school, it's like you love going to hotels. Uh, my daughter, uh, we took her to a hotel a couple of weeks ago just for a quick like little staycation. And she has been asking ever since, can we go back to the hotel? Miserable experience for the parents. Kids love it. Now, so I get in this, hotel, this Holiday Inn Express and I'm like, okay, it's fine. They're trying their best, but I'm longing for my own pillow. I'm longing for the cushionness of like my bed. I want my own towels. Like I want all my own stuff. And so I check into this hotel after a day of traveling and flying. Uh, I don't know if you can relate to this. You kind of feel dirty. feels like there's like this smog on your body. And so my first thing was like, okay, I'm gonna jump in the shower and just get myself nice and clean. Now, some of you are gonna think I'm a weirdo. I have a thing for like big, like big fluffy towels. Not, not those towels that it's like, who's this for? Like it's so small, it covers like one arm. And I was like, I'm gonna be here for a week. I don't want these tiny little puny uncomfortable towels. And so when I was checking in, I noticed that across the street there was a Walmart. <laughs> and so uh, I made my way across the street over to the Walmart and I bought these two massive, like fluffy, almost like beach towels. Because I'm gonna be here for a week. I, I wanna like live it right. So I, so I got my towels and like, I, you know, dried off. And I was like, I was feeling pretty good about myself. But once I kind of settled in after taking a shower, I, I don't know what, like if there's like some sort of like collaboration amongst hotels that they all agree that every hotel room has to be dimly lit. I don't know if they're like afraid of us finding something. But again, I was like, I'm going to be here for a week and it feels like I'm in prison. The, the windows don't open, that light switch, it turns on like just this little tiny, it's like the equivalent of one of those bulbs. I'm like, who's that for? And so again, Call me crazy. I went back across the street to Walmart and I bought a floor lamp, like a six foot floor lamp, and I bought this massive LED light bulb and I screwed that sucker in there, flipped it on. I was like, now I'm living. Okay, like here we go. I'm feeling pretty good now. So I went to sleep that night. Uh, didn't sleep particularly well, kind of tossed and turned all, all night. And so the next day, you know, conference gets done. I go back to the hotel room, probably about five o'clock. And I was like, I didn't sleep particularly well. Uh, and I think the reason that I didn't sleep well is because these sheets are terrible and they feel like sandpaper, and I was so uncomfortable, and like tossing and turning the whole night, so uh, I'm a sucker for those jersey sheets, you know, they kind of feel like a t-shirt, and uh, I went back across the street to Walmart, and I bought some king-size jersey sheets, lugged them back across the street, stripped the bed, I mean, the maids had to be wondering what the heck is going on here, and I put on my jersey sheets, and I was like, crawled into bed, I was like, I am feeling good now. Now, by about this time, it's about 6.30, and I'm like in bed, ready to rock, ready to watch Monday Night Football because that's what men do. And I got into bed 
And, and I'm looking at this TV and I'm like, this is embarrassing. It's like 30 inches. It's the picture quality. I think it was like a plasma TV. I'm like, who's still using plasma TVs? I was like, I'm gonna be here for a week. I don't wanna deal with this like rinky dink television. So I noticed when I was at Walmart that something was on sale. And so off I went to Walmart again and I bought myself a 60 inch flat screen. Uh, must have looked like I was like remodeling the place and I brought it back inside and I disconnected the 30 inch TV and I hooked up the 60 inch flat screen and I was like, now we're living. Like I had just taken a shower with my big comfy towel. I was in bed with my nice soft sheets. I had my 60 inch flat screen. The, the room was well lit because I had bought my lamp. I mean, ready to go. Now, if any of that story were true, you all should immediately think less of me. But just as ridiculous as it would be for me to check into the Holiday Inn Express and pour thousands of dollars into a hotel room that I am going to be staying at for a week, it is equally ridiculous for the people in this room, and in particular the Jesus followers, that we continue to accumulate and hoard and buy things for ourselves for the here and now. This life that is so incredibly short when we look at it in the context of eternity. It's no less ridiculous that we keep leveraging our wealth for the benefit of ourselves during our very, very short stay on earth. James is telling us, in fact, that all of our stuff, all of our wealth, it'll actually be the very thing that testifies against us when we come to see Jesus face to face. We say this all the time, our love for God is illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by how well we love the people around us. And I don't know if this moment for sure is gonna happen, but I just picture us standing in front of Jesus, you know, when the end of our lives come. And I don't know if he'll ask this question, but maybe. He'll say, hey, how did you leverage your riches? How did you leverage your wealth for the people around you? for the benefit of the people around you who had less than you. And we probably are figuring that this question is coming. So we get out our index cards. We're like, ah, got this one ready to rock. And we talk about all the different times we dropped a couple bucks in the bucket as they came by. So I tithe, you know, on Christmas and Easter every single year. And we talk about how we sponsored that compassion child. We talk about the different times that we'd volunteer at that nonprofit. I mean, it really wasn't that many times each year, but over the course of your life, it kind of like really added up. And you're rifling off all this stuff to Jesus and about five minutes into it, he's like pretty disinterested. I, I just picture him kind of like peering around you and you sensing that he's not really paying attention to what you're saying anymore. You just stop talking and you look over and you're like, what, what the heck are you looking at? And, and, and I picture Jesus just like, that, that's great by the way. You know, you, you sponsored that compassion child and everything, that, that, that's awesome. But why was your house so big? That, 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 that's awesome. Like I, I love that like, you tithed every once in a while, but why did you feel the need to remodel your kitchen? Like, what wasn't working before? Like, like I love that, that you did those generous things throughout the year, but what was wrong with your old car? Why did you feel the need to buy more of those? I, I just picture Jesus pointing to all of our stuff, things, possessions, bank accounts, home improvements, cars. And James would tell us that that'll be the very stuff that testifies against us. It, it'll be the very thing that we are so embarrassed of that makes us look so foolish. 
When I read passages of scripture like this, it's hard for me not to picture, this is how my brain works. Like, like what if Jesus just showed up on my doorstep one day? You know, he's knocking and you weren't expecting company and you're all of a sudden like, who's that? And you do the whole thing where you go look out like the window where you know they're not gonna be able to see you, but you're gonna be able to see them just in case it's somebody you don't wanna talk to, you can hide well, you know? So you're like, do that thing and it's like, Andrea, it's Jesus. She's like, what? I'm like, it's Jesus at the front door. And we start running around the house and cramming stuff into closets and pushing stuff under beds and putting things under our sheets and under rugs. So embarrassed as he looks around my home at all the junk that I have. And in turn, the missed opportunities to leverage my wealth for the benefit of other people. Jesus himself puts it this way. These are Jesus' words. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and, and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy and, and thieves do not break in and steal. And, and then he goes on to make this very, very direct statement. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. J Jesus is telling us something that, again, I think we all know, but we don't live like we know. He's telling you again, like, there's not going to be this moment when you die where I'm going to hand you the keys to a U-Haul and say, fill it up with all the stuff that you really want to take with you. He's like, that, that, that moment's not coming. And, and then he gets at what's really at the heart of all of this and why this matters to Jesus so, so much. It's why Jesus talked about money all the time. I think it's why it's literally the second most popular subject in all of scripture. The only thing that is talked about more is the word sin. Second most popular subject in all of scripture. And he goes on to say, you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus and James, and James learned it all from Jesus himself and surely witnessed this during his lifetime, knows that the chief competitor for your heart, for your devotion, for my heart, for all of our hearts, will forever be our stuff, will forever be our money, our possessions. You can't serve, you can't claim allegiance to both. And I think that this rings even more true for people like us that live in these first world countries. Now, as I mentioned, just about every single time that we even remotely touch on money, because unfortunately, one of the terrible raps that churches have gotten is that we're just after your money. That like, you know, again, this could easily be misconstrued today that like Grumlaw is just after your money as if like, you know, like the ties are taken and like after that moment I sprint to the back and like put it all in a duffel bag and run out to my car. Um, not the case. And, and, and I mean this when I say this and, and people have told me you shouldn't say things like that. It just sounds too like harsh. But you guys, here's my heart. I, I truly, I'm not just saying this, I, I honestly could care less whether you ever give a nickel to this church. That's where I'm at that. Don't think so highly of yourself that this place is somehow going to rise or fall based on whether or not you give. That the only reason, and I mean the only reason that I care whether you give or not is because it tells a story of where your heart is at. It, it paints a very, very accurate picture of just how much you trust God. Where your treasure is, there your loyalty will also be. And so if your treasures are all here on earth, that's where your loyalty will lie. If you're using your wealth for the benefit of others, if you're leveraging what God has bestowed to you for the benefit of other people, then your loyalty clearly lies with Jesus. And if you don't regularly give, 
which is the only way that you're gonna break the power of greed in your life, it will forever be the thing that holds you and your relationship with Jesus back. And that I care a lot about. I care very much about every person walking in this room and where they're at with Jesus. I want you to experience the most fulfilled, purpose-filled life imaginable. And James is telling us is this will be the thing that keeps you from going where God ultimately wants to take you. Money, unfortunately, is usually the very last thing that people will hand over to God that they'll give him the control of. And unfortunately, I'm just speaking off statistics and what we even see at this church. Unfortunately, most American Christians never, I mean literally never practice regular giving. And so the question as we wrap up this morning is how are you leveraging your wealth for the benefit of others? How are you using what God has given to you for the benefit of the people around you. Now, one of the most common uh, things that I hear back in response to a a question like this is, I I just don't know where to start. And I I think that we are all smart enough to know that that's a very, very lazy excuse. Some of you, you need to start practicing just what I was alluding to. You need to start practice giving a percentage of your income away. Now, I am of the belief that 10% should be the starting point, not the finish line. But, but I, I'm also smart enough to know that some of you, the, the thought of giving 10% of your income regularly away is enough to just like, yeah, right, and you'll just never do it. So start somewhere. Start with two. Start with five. Start with six. Start somewhere. Start practicing regularly giving a percentage of your income away. That, that when your checks come in, every single time, a certain percentage goes right back out to God. So start volunteering some, somewhere. Again, we talk about this all the time. Some of you, again, God has been speaking to you about volunteering at something like Franklin Avenue Mission. We talk about that organization all the time. They serve one of the most impoverished communities literally in the United States. They always need more help. Some of you, sponsor a compassion child. There's over 50 children that are sponsored through this church just since Mother's Day. It's incredible. You guys are killing it in that regard. For $38 a month, and I know it's not a tiny amount of money, but it definitely gets those kids clean drinking water. It gets them food. It gets them connection to a local church and it makes sure that they get an education. $38 a month will make an enormous impact in a child's life. Some of you, I saw a church out in California doing this. They've been challenging their people to stock their, their vehicles with imperishables, for, with non-perishables rather, so that when you come across that homeless lady, that homeless guy, and, and you feel conflicted about handing that individual a $20 bill, which I get, at least you thought ahead that you always have a case of water, you always have granola bars in your car, so that every single time you pull up next to that person, you hand it to them. You show that person that they are loved, that you see them. Some of you, it goes farther than that. You, you need to start giving more. God's been telling you that, and it's terrifying, but he's telling you to give more. Some of you guys, you, you would be wise to downsize your home. God's literally telling you that, but it's terrifying. You need to downgrade your vehicle. As I say just about every single week, the reality is I have no idea how God is speaking to you right now. I don't. I don't have a crystal ball. I couldn't go down the line and say, I think he's saying this to you, to this to you. I'm just confident that if you are listening, if your heart is open right now, God does indeed have something to say to you. So, So here's the moral of the story this morning. When you see a need, meet that need. Error on the side of being generous Err on the side of giving as opposed to accumulating more for you. Even when it's reckless, even when you know that it's going to put you at a financial disadvantage, even when you know it's gonna cause you some level of stress, error on the side of giving 
rather than hoarding more for yourself. Now, now here's really what, what my heart is at behind all of this. When we consider what Jesus did on a cross for every single one of us, when you really, really allow that to sink in, how could this not be a natural thing? How could this not be one of our responses? Jesus, who leveraged his authority, I mean, think about that, he's the son of God. Who, who has ever had more authority than that for the benefit of all of us? Jesus, who, who saw a glaring need in this world, we had forever severed that relationship with God. There was nothing that we could do on our own accord that would make that right. Jesus saw that glaring need and he met that need when he sacrificed himself on a cross for you. And, and Jesus begs us to consider how, how are you leveraging your wealth for the benefit of the people around you? People that, by the way, Jesus saw fit to die for. So when you see a need, meet that need. I, I don't think that we as Jesus followers ever look more like him than when we're being generous.